Hello everyone, welcome to Freshwater Perspectives. Today we'll be talking about the Pearl and Button Gold Rush on the Mississippi River. Hope you enjoy. And we're back. Matt, how we doing? Riley, I am doing okay. It's been a minute since we last recorded. Been a minute. Um, it seems to be a habit of ours as of late, but... Life um, is getting in the way, unfortunately. I know. Well, the Christmas season is in full swing. Mm -hmm. uh, Rachel and I went to a gingerbread village, so that was fun. <laughs> uh, um, I don't know why you're laughing. That was nice. It was fun. I'm just really like picturing fun. you um, and Rachel... <laughs> Like you're walking your fingers through a little gingerbread village together. <laughs> like it's just in your apartment, like one that you created. No, <laughs> the Harry not Potter like theme. Do, 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 do. Um, we did do a little, I, so we wanted to do like a, a little, I don't know, like a, a Christmas activity. So we did that. Mm -hmm. We came back and we painted our own little Christmas decorations and watched uh, watch the Grinch. Stop that was a, it. That was yeah, it was nice. Yeah, man, got to get in the Christmas spirit. Oh, how happy are you now that Rachel has a little more time? It's great, but it's wow. also like we need to, now she's not like tied to the books right now. So mm -hmm. she's like, what can we do? What can we do? So we're kind of like now we have yeah. to kind of fill all the extra time instead of me oh, sitting on the couch watching football. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but what about you, man? What's That's up? Good. Um, so we got a lot of snow. So hmm. we've gotten... Probably like in the last couple of weeks, maybe foot, foot and a half. Um, and now I'm in charge of snow removal. So that's been fun. Um, oh, really? New homeowner, right? Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. I was like, wait, at your job? That's crazy. <laughs> so I was like, how are we going to get rid of all this snow? I was like, one shovel at a time, buddy. Like, mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, But work has been good. It's still a little crazy. Um, lots, lots of moving parts. Went to a, a, a meeting and that was fun. So like meeting of... I mean, every single, every single district, county, right, has one of me. So it was interesting to see just the whole oh. smattering of people, like, two years from retirement. And then I, I'm for sure one of the younger individuals. And I was like, hello. So, <laughs> but um, that's been fun. I got to go out and sample with one of my, I should say, shadow. I'm not a sampler anymore, unfortunately. But uh, shadow to one of my, my, my crew. And, um, you know, it really, really made me happy about why I'm back in this area because um, we have a, just interesting water dynamics. We went to a few sites where it just like right out of the like the bluffs, like the limestone, just like, oh, that's the start of stream right there. And it's just like that's that's it. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, but other than that, I mean, a lot of office work still. And but we're, we're getting through the end of it. Um, I'm going to cut, cut the banter right there because I. I don't have too much else. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Let's, let's, let's dive right into it. Yeah. Well, I got a long one, so I want to be good on time for everyone. All right. We are back again. Welcome to uh, Freshwater Perspectives. Uh, Matt and I go back and forth every week, and it's my turn to go. Um, I, it might be a little bit longer, so that's why I kind of cut the banter a little bit short for everybody's sake of time. But yeah, so I'm going to be talking about the Pearl and Button gold rush on the Mississippi. 
And why I did this was, I don't know how many episodes back it's been, but last couple of episodes have been all a little doom and gloom on my side. So I was like, you know, <laughs> I need to take a step back and refresh. Um, so this is, Matt has talked in a couple episodes ago too about um, some, some muscle um, conservation. And this will be a little bit like that but really about this one individual named John Buffalo, the button extraordinaire. So we'll be talking about oh. that. It is the rise and fall of the button industry on the Mississippi okay. River. Okay. I like it. I know and nothing he, about this, so I'm very okay. excited. So I, I heard a little bit about this being in La Crosse, Wisconsin, the thing I've mentioned like 45,000 times, but, um, you know, it's just, it's a portion of their history. Uh, I didn't dive into this. So this is, um, yeah, I'm going to get into it. It might be a little scripty, um, so I apologize for that. Also, side note, very deep side note. I've been doing a lot of editing of our um, uh, podcasts, and in the last couple episodes, I said like, the word like, and situation. I don't know why. S so many times. <laughs> situation. Like, what? So uh, I deeply apologize. I had to, like, walk away. See? I had to walk away. Um <laughs> from one of my editing things because it's like why, why am i saying it like, <laughs> so um i'm gonna do better that's the goal okay, well it sounds like we have a new drinking game for the list did they be nurse like riley says like or situation like use <laughs> miller light beer like very light light beer uh, you will it'll be <laughs> not bad, sponsored but... i know okay um, all right, so I'm going to get started. So, sometimes in history, a bizarre set of circumstances spurs on events not observed before or after a certain point of time. How's that for an intro? And such is the okay. case is the pearl and button, and when I say button, the shell button gold rush that gripped the upper Mississippi River starting in 1890 and continued to the turn of the century. So we're going to talk about that today. Um, mostly the shell button industry. It's wild what happened. A little bit on the freshwater okay. pearl industry. And again, we're going to go in deep to John Buppel, B-O-E-P-P-L-E. -P -P -E, John Buppel, a German um, immigrant into the, um, into the United States. This, this whole publication, I read, a, I read a lot about this. I really did a deep dive. It was a good, like, just, <laughs> just cleansing you know the palate as of recent uh big portion of this was from francis heard in the annals of iowa published in 1966 oh. almost like a personal history hmm. um she, her, her family was a button family in iowa um i took with a little bit of grain of salt here and there i think some of it was a little hearsay -y, but um i know i will point out in the story where that happened but okay, okay. you ready for yeah, this let's do it all right mm -hmm. let's cue the mayor character like i said cue the main character john bubble and this is where our story starts in this german craftsman the story starts in otensen germany in the 1880s and this time in history individuals would we're, we're talking about buttons so how does one fasten their clothes uh you can tie it with a little piece of cloths you can have little cloth ties. And if you were well-to-do, you would have buttons made out of seashells 
horns, antlers, or other hide value materials, okay? And John's business, that's what he did. He made high valued buttons um, huh. to these wealthier individuals, okay? And while in mm -hmm. Germany, though, um, John fell on some hard times. His wife suddenly passed away. And to make matters worse, a new high taxation rate was imposed on the raw products um, that made these buttons. So seashells, there's a tariff mm. put on them. Oh. And ha antlers and horns as well coming into Germany. And it made John's business not economically viable. And... This is almost like a little sink, Shawnee, but in, in trying to overcome his hardships, John remembered a button or a box of muscle shells that his father received years before that um, was gifted to him from the United States. Huh. This is what was written <laughs> in many uh, historian documentation. So okay. I'm not making this up. And you know, these hard times came into, you know, came into play. And, you know, he's like, I, my, I'm going to make a life with buttons, you know. And so remembering that box, he decided in 1887 to move to the United States, leaving Europe, his life behind him, uh, in search of new opportunities to find the source of the shells that his father's was sent years before. Um, having no money and, and unable to speak English, John took odd jobs in the United States to survive. But on the side, John was collecting mussels in local stretches of rivers uh, as he traveled from the east to the west, western United States. Okay. John's only clue, <laughs> John's only clue to where these mussels um, that his father's was gifted um, came from, he knew it was around Chicago, 200 miles around Chicago. Okay. That's where he thought they came from. So he, he went there in search for these mussels. This search led him to Muscatine, Iowa in 1890 on the shores of the Mississippi River, where he found a vast mussel bed that lined the shallows of the river. Uh, with, with, there, there was a certain, he's looking for a certain shell texture and thickness for making these really good buttons. And he found that oh. in the Mississippi. Hmm. Um, there was some folklore around this where he made this observation after swimming in the river where he cut his foot on one of the shells to make that life-changing discovery. Isn't this fun? <laughs> Muscles see, far as the eye can see. It's, see, it's, it's brighter. It's brighter than PFAS or lead. Yeah, uh, it is. I like it. <laughs> so with this finding, whatever, whatever way it was found, this is what happened. Uh, John did put down roots in Muscatine to build his business anew. And he designed a number of buttons, which he sold to local merchants. Um, he made, made some headway with it, but it was very slow at first. But very interesting what happened was um, that, that, so there was a tariff when he was in Germany, mm -hmm. and that made him leave. But a new tariff was imposed on the United States, where it, it was just like Germany. Um, there was a taxation rate to put on these raw materials into the United States. So if you were to make buttons for very rich people um, with seashells that you're getting from the you know places outside the U.S., it, it made that business model not economically viable. Mm -hmm. If you were to do buttons where you're getting mussels from local streams, you just you yep. I mean, mm -hmm. made made it made all the difference in this business apparently. So mm -hmm. uh, as John was doing this, he was just surprisingly situated in just this really good situation and um he he continued to do um button making a little bit after this terror was put into place in his home he was looking for capital to begin his new business 
Um, it wasn't for another year later until a local woman loaned him $10 that he bought uh, five. No, I don't know the name of the woman. It just said local woman in the thing. <laughs> so he, he turned that into $500 worth of machinery and he began his factory. I'd like to say okay. empire. <laughs> so, so up to this point, he was making the buttons by himself. Like mm-hmm. just by hand. Yes, by hand. Is that what it was, or is he just? Yes. He, yeah, is he just making them out of his house. Wow. Making them out of his house, and, and then, well, I, so there was some was... machinery. Yeah. Um, like there's foot powered powder. Excuse me, powered pedal machines. Um, I don't know exactly okay. know what that is. So I guess there must be something like a rotating device, like a polisher, for example. And it was a yeah, foot. kind of. Yeah, mm-hmm. I would imagine like a lathe or something, some way to kind of yeah. trim down the rough edges of that of that shell to get to the shape you needed to. Yeah, so oh. there's all these things that come. So the tariff came in here. Okay. Um, and then these, these he turned ten dollars into five hundred dollars worth of machinery, and this mm-hmm. is like a, also the turn of the time is happening is that these <laughs> foot powered machines are going to steam engine machines, which increased factory output by a lot. So I believe. These five hundred dollars that he gotcha. spent so he was kinda, for this. Okay. Yep. Perfect situation. <clears throat> so this he began his factory, mm-hmm. and a little foreshadowing: um, the town of Muscatine be, all, became the pearl button capital of the world, with over 50, 53 factories operating there until the nineteen sixties. So it went bananas. Um, <laughs> so that's a foreshadowing. Wow. We're not going to go too far into that now. Let's we'll take a step back. So how does one? capture muscles and make them into buttons any thoughts <laughs> uh, sounds straightforward mm-hmm. but i'm guessing it's not yeah. i mean i don't know is it just is it as simple as just grabbing them and throwing them in a basket no, it's, it's pretty that's pretty much that <laughs> and okay the base of john's business is finding quality muscles okay then this can be done by hand you can dig on the the river uh, you can, it's called clamming, or some call it polywogging, as they called it. It's it's slow and difficult to do by hand. Um, John, in his search to get more muscles quicker, developed what's known as crow's feet. They kind of look like barbed wire hooks, but you put them on rope or, or trout line, and it would drag across the bottom. It's like these metal hooks um, that look like crow's feet. And it would go over muscles in on the bottom, and once that metal barb kind of hit the flesh of a muscle, it would clamp down, you know, to protect itself. Oh. Um, therefore, clamping on this oh. piece of metal and like kind of hooking it, and then that would mm-hmm. bring the muscle, you know, attach it to the line, and someone could, after rowing for a little bit, pull up the line and have a variety of muscles. Okay. Hmm. I think, I mean, as I've been reading, this is the time where um, muscles were everywhere. So it was like beds or shoals or whatever you want to call it. Hmm. Um, so not not far fetched to have just yeah the, the the crop. I mean, you just go over it, and I mean, you could fill up um, a rowboat. So people were using rowboats. You'd have you'd row or go downstream. The the ropes would be out. You're dragging it, and you're just pulling up muscles and muscles and muscles then they would go until um the whole boat was filled okay Hmm. and 
so John's invention, it, it started out with a, you know, a couple crow's feet and he did it behind a boat. Uh, production became so intense that John had to order 10,000 crow's feet in one order um, to keep his practice moving forward. Yeah. Wow. That, that Things are ramping up. pretty intense. Wow. So this is, this is a lot of muscles too. It's a lot cow. of muscles. This is not what we think about. This is, it was just a different world when it comes to muscles. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But also um, just, so like, what was the timeline as far as, so going from like in his, doing this by himself in his house to this, this is commercial scale. Like how, yeah. over how long did a couple, this We're a couple of years, a couple of years. Okay. Um, Still, that's quick. Quick. Um. So the, okay. So, Crow's feet, you get in your boat, you bring it back to shore, um, and then you get a big pot, big pot. You had a fire going, you start boiling um, water, you throw in those mussels that cooks the meat, they pop open, pop, 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 pop. You throw away the meat, and you got empty shells for making buttons. So you'd have... Throwing away the best part, man. John had wagonfuls of shells brimming over with, over with quote-unquote product that he would send back to his factory. Mm. Um, and then let's let the button-making process begin. So these now cleaned shells arrive at the factory. They're first graded by size and color, often by species. Um, they are further soaked in, it said water. I got to believe that it's some other product to like uh, break things down or make it, I'm not sure, maybe mm-hmm. make it more clean yeah, maybe. Almost. Yeah, like almost sterilize them, maybe. Yeah, and then so it's they first soak, then after a couple of days they're cut by tubular saw to produce kind of a um, rough blank, as they call it. So there's they're looking for like mm-hmm. small cylinders about the size of mm-hmm. buttons, because that's what it'll be. And then the, you know that'll be like the yeah the blanks that they call it. So mm-hmm. just pump, 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 pump. And I have photos of a shell, and you could see like all these muscle holes the holes hmm. within the shell, excuse me, for yeah. that's what they're getting these blanks from. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Almost, almost like a hole puncher, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, blanks are then sanded multiple times. Uh, they're polished. They're drilled for loopholes in a variety of patterns specific to the, um, what the producer, the button producer is going for. Uh, they receive like a final polish, dry, and they are finished in tumblers of acid. So it's just a lot of grinding down. That's really the button yeah, making make, process. Me. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. So it seems simple, but labor, it was very labor intensive. So it was an issue. Uh, shell mm-hmm. button factories employed hundreds, hundreds of people to assist in this process. Mm-hmm. And it became um, the finishing. So like the finish and polishing portion. So like that back end portion became very popular. Uh, as this person wrote it for housewives at the time, like a side income. Uh, and hmm. um, oh, okay. even, yeah, like even like church groups, like that was like their thing to do. I, I don't know if necessarily hmm. to raise money, but that was a point that this individual put in their story. And then, okay, so there was other factories too. So some factories would do the whole process, whereas other factories will have like um, assisting factories where they'll do, well, you know, I'll, we'll just cut blanks and then we'll send it somewhere else and that'll be the finishing mm-hmm. factories. Um, okay. There was also side industries that grew at the time as well, and I thought they were interesting. So this individual who wrote this main article that I'm taking from, uh, she was the granddaughter and daughter so it was a father and son team that 
that converted a flower business in Iowa. Like this all happened and they're like, oh, we need to get in on this. So they converted their flower milling business to, um, well, I guess they kind of rented it out to the Empire Pearl Button Company of New York. And what they did Hmm. was they, they took the shells that like had hole punches pop 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 and they 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 -hmm. took it and they ground they developed machinery um groundbreaking machinery at the time it it seems like a grinder they made a grinder they ground down those shells and then (laughs) then then they they use that like muscle shell those chips for different things which is interesting Mm -hmm. um they could be so if you ever go to like um a florist and they put flowers in little pebbles or rocks that was what they used it for so like the mm-hmm. the fill for the oh, there huh. the the aquarium interesting rocks and pebbles at one point were oh. made of ground shells that were colored uh, you could also put them in stucco that and cement yeah me... they they also put them in stucco and <laughs> cement products to make that like a gleamy or shininess of the wall and um some hmm. were used in the big one that they, they used this was the shell chips were used as bird grit in the poultry industry. Um, the, oh, the, the consumed okay. grit produced harder calcium shells on the eggs. And this is attributed to being hmm. um, eggs being able to transport farther throughout the United States. So that like really progressed the poultry industry because of harder egg shells. They could hmm. transport easier. Would not have thought of that. So I don't know. At this time, they just had weak, huh. weak shells. <laughs> People were just dropping shells like, "Oh well, I guess, man!" Yeah, like... <laughs> I mean, yeah, I guess the extra calcium in the uh, in the, be... in the shells somehow it makes, makes its way to the eggs. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. interesting. Would okay. never have guessed that. Okay, so um, cue the fun part of this little uh, story. This is the start of the gold rush. So um, this button industry, it was taking hold in Muscatine, Iowa, and the really around the area that this boom spread quickly, that the, a gold rush atmosphere began. Individuals could go out and collect shells that they could bring to the receiving factories and get paid a finder's fee. Shells could be sold at a profit higher than a day's wages. Um, that what that could be made in a factory, which individuals chose to do because factories were filthy and gross, and I'll discuss mm-hmm. that later. Yeah, um, no, it makes sense. Yeah, for sure. And what what really compounded this though was this enamorment of freshwater pearls. Okay, mm-hmm. so it's a double. So that that kind of came as sources like two incomes for these mm-hmm. clamors, and yeah. so for those people that don't know. Um, you know, oysters can make pearls in the ocean and other clam mussel species, but that, that can also happen in freshwater. The same process, a little piece of grit or something gets stuck between the shell, um, and the word is, I believe, nectar? Necre? There's like um, that mother of pearl lining in it. There's a name of it, mm-hmm. and that, that just gets wrapped around in like a response to a foreign object within a mussel, and that's what produces those pearls, and it gives it that like hard... Um, substance around the pearls. Um, most pearls sold for like one or four dollars per ounce, which is a lot. I mean, even back in the day. Yeah. But some yeah, pearls. Sure. Um, in 1964, the Des Moines Register, uh, a pearl necklace sold, sold, excuse me, for five thousand dollars, and one exquisite pearl sold at a Chicago jeweler for two thousand dollars. Just one. 
So Jeez, that's these, a lot of money back then. I know. So these stories are oh kind of wrapping around, and it's just it's just getting people in like a, a fever pitch for yeah. for muscling. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I mean... the, yeah, fast money. It spread like wildfire in the area, and whole family units descended upon the Mississippi River to dig for shells. And this is where it might be a little. Um, folklorish in this report but uh, they said that you know hundreds of fires on the riverbanks was seen at night as people would they would shell in the day oh. they would come back and they would boil um their 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 catch to clean the shells and and, and bring those to the factories um it was also reported that hundreds of houseboats were constructed in a sim single summer on the mississippi so individuals could mm. get access to the river and just stay there the whole yeah. time uh, so like some Huck Finn, um, like to picture that in your mind. And I mean, to be fair, there are houseboats or these like shacks that are still on the Mississippi River. So it's not, it's not, not true. So definitely, no, I mean, like yeah. that was there. I mean, it makes sense if, if that's your yeah. sole source of income, there's no point in going anywhere else. Mm -hmm. um, in one brochure, brochure, excuse me, developed by the Hawkeye Pearl Button Company, a single shelling boat could be constructed with materials from ten dollars uh if you got your crow's feet your oars and so on you could get you know 20 bucks gets you in the business to dig muscles and there you go um the typical boat is three feet wide 14 feet long so like a john boat okay oh, okay yep yeah. and yeah, uh, you collect muscles until your boat could not withstand any more weight. You row it back into shore, you boil it, you look for pearls as well as your um, muscles. Okay. Mm -hmm. Sounds fun. And here's some numbers. <laughs> In 1913, $1.5 million was paid out to individuals as they brought products of buttons or pearls to factories and jewelers. That is comparable to $45 million in 2022. Holy cow. <laughs> yeah, this is, that's that's a this huge is industry. Yep. Oh, my oh, Lord. Here's some more numbers. Uh, in 1937, 27 tons of shells, tons, were collected in, in 17 states, producing 17 million buttons valued at $4.7 at that time, or $1.4 billion in today's value. Holy cow. That's yep. insane. Oh, I love the numbers, Riley. I love it. All all the while, Muscatine, Iowa, at its peak in 1905, they produced 40% of the world's production, or 1.5 billion buttons. Wow. How have I never heard of Muscatine, <laughs> Iowa? I don't know. Who's needed all these buttons, though? Good no Lord. Kidding. Yeah. Wow. I mean... So that's the gold rush. Wow. Now I'm just thinking of the, pod, of the episode I did talking about muscles. Now I can see where they all went. Mm -hmm. 27 oh, yeah. tons of yeah. shells oh it gets wow. it gets fun okay so let's uh let's let's go to the downfall of the button industry so with any good gold rush there comes an end at some point we all know that uh, mississippi muscle stocks declined substantially with this boom in the industry in the areas matt talked about you know they don't just grow overnight uh, some of those could be decades old and shellers began to leave the area. They, they went for search in rivers and streams in Illinois, Iowa, and Arkansas for better shell sources. And still, though, many of those collected shells were being brought back to Muscatine, Iowa, 
over harvesting was reported so like we're starting like in the beginning of the story 1890 this is like 1897 mm-hmm. where there's over harvesting was pr- reported um, mm-hmm. so even that early and john buppel our our famed character in this story he you know they thought they saw over harvesting but they weren't like going to do anything yet so he went mm-hmm. to congress to ask for more taxes um on imports some more tariffs that further okay, protected so... the the pearl and button businesses inside the united states if anything just uh, making yes. the problem worse mm-hmm. just so, further yeah. encouraging people to harvest yes. like native mussels okay yes this did not slow the mass harvesting of u.s shells uh, from our rivers and populations of mussels declined and it, it went down to you know only a few mussels per river mile um much like what we potentially see today there it is getting better from what i'm hearing i'm not a muscle person um and more troubles began for john buppel as well uh he suspected his business investors of trying to steal his button processes to be used in different factories he wasn't wrong and indeed it was reported that other factories were recruiting john's button craftsmen to manage their operations this drove john to order equipment and chemicals not needed in his factory but utilized to confuse individuals who may be headhunted by other businesses. <laughs> like, they're not going to get my buttons. He, he, he just reminds me, if you're a student of history, there's like mm-hmm. so many like old kings, like old European kings that like yeah. they'd get to power and they just immediately be so suspicious of like everyone around them that they'd start mm-hmm. like beheading people. It's just immediately yeah. what this reminds me of. He's like, hmm. Also, he didn't, from what I read, he, he didn't, learn english fully so like when he went to go talk to congress i was like hmm, uh oh, my yeah, like translator or something that. yeah, yeah. Hmm. um but also yeah. so driving this issue for john was that he you know he was a true craftsman he saw himself as a craftsman and this was like you know craft and the, the, the rise of mm-hmm. industrialization and the button process he just couldn't get behind it um and that really kind of he was looking for like craftsmanship over profit so it made his factory less than ideal oh, um, his pearl poor business skills drove um, john's partners to vin- to convince him to operate a factory in a new city davenport iowa um, and it, it turned out to be somewhat of a, of a coup um, and th- that that occurred in this original muscatine factory and the shady business tactic drove john to leave his own business and become a button buyer for other factories so he, he was drove out of his poor um his Oh, business no. or his first factory because he was a poor poor businessman unfortunately oh no it sounds like they just tricked him like they were like hey john there's actually a much better setup over there mm-hmm. in davenport where you just go run mm-hmm. that factory he's like, like okay guys have you ever heard of davenport <laughs> i know oh, like man. this is your industry buddy but could you go over there for a little bit um i know you, i know you like invented everything and built this factory <laughs> but you should just like go away for a while oh poor john <laughs> He was, I mean, he was I just paranoid like, for a reason. He kind of, I mean, he must have felt justified in a little bit by the end. I was like, see? <laughs> oh, man. I could just see him, like, ordering, like, 10,000 mop handles or something. To, like... <laughs> so these these people are, like, trying, like, in the in the shadows or something, pretending like they're working, like, looking over, and he's just <laughs> all this random equipment where he's like, we're going to need this. Big ideas coming. <laughs> it's just a lie. <laughs> He's just throwing them against the wall. He's like not even shaping buttons out of them. No. Yeah. Uh, poor John. Oh, no. um, so we'll, we'll go back to John a little bit. But let's also, you know, the button industry was 
that he created, but other other factories were were having issues as well. So mm-hmm. um, they were not without issues. These button factories. Uh, researchers found many labor disputes were held in Muscatine Pearl button factories. The Iowa State's labor commissioners did agree that um, these areas were really hazardous. You, know, you had machinery, unsanitary conditions. People were breathing in just shell dust all day. I mean, it's, it's not like they had, you know, masks. It was like, and yeah, yeah. so um, not good. Uh, it was also reported that 2,500 children less than 15 years old worked in these factories. So a lot of child labor. Ooh. And this poor working condition started a local labor union. Um, they got together in 1910 called the Muscatine Worker, excuse me, the Muscatine Button Workers Protective Union. And just the formation of the union alone caused 25 manufacturers to stop immediately. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, they're like, just oh, the threat. God. The and threat to be fair, wow. it's, it's likely because it was just that time in the, like, in the, in history where like overproduction, low inventory, those, they were going to be done anyways. And they just used mm-hmm. as a scapegoat for sure. Um, Muscatine wow. factories with this union formed, they began a strike. The strike got violent as they attacked non-union workers or scabs that came mm-hmm. to take yep. over um, the, the button jobs. I would just like to see them throw buttons at them. <laughs> Boo! And they're throwing. <laughs> and um, so local authorities use strike breakers to control riots as well. Uh, the button maker strike lasted 18 months didn't fix anything they just went back to work unfortunately yeah Um, another another strike in excuse me 1933 that they did another strike and that did improve conditions a little bit okay yeah that that whole situation that's like copy paste for like all those early union strikes in the early 1900s where it's like the coal industry railroad Mm -hmm. like garments yeah it was all yeah violent rides yep. between the scabs and stuff yeah i know there were situations <laughs> depending on kind of who was paying off the cops so you have scabs come in mm-hmm. the protesters wouldn't even like be violent towards the scabs and then the cops would still come and arrest the protesters mm-hmm. like I, I just would like in their act of defiance i could see them going back to like the the cloth tying of their clothing <laughs> like <laughs> No buttons. Yeah, it may, hey, it may have happened, man. <laughs> yeah. And um, so, unfortunately, things were not looking good for the shell button industry in the middle of the 20th century. And a variety of factors contribute to its downfall. There's four main reasons I've come to find mm-hmm. um, that the, the button industry began to slow. Um, what do you think they are, Matt? Four. All right. So one <laughs> is almost certainly the lack of muscles, the lack of supply. Over-harvesting, yes. Yeah. I'm going to guess two was expensive labor. Yeah. Uh, okay. Oh, okay. Two for Ooh. two so far. Mm-hmm. Um, is three, might be a little early. Is it like plastics coming? Yeah. Com- okay. Oh, my God. Oh. You're never, you're never going to get the fourth one. I don't I'll know the fourth one. Is it like a supply, like supply chain something? Nope. I don't know. Can't okay. Get Here we go. Time. Okay. All right. Number one, over harvesting. Matt got it right. Mm-hmm. Um, gold rush of this muscle harvesting was not sustainable. Dwindled muscle inventory let reduce, excuse me inventory led to a reduction in a reduced production compared to what occurred in the early 1900s plastic okay the plastic industry came uh you can make buttons from plastic uh yep 
cost effective. Um, competition from Japan specifically. Hmm. So uh, receiving, cutting, polishing, freshwater shell buttons, you know, labor intensive, like we talked about. Competition from Japan, uh, they had a two pronged approach. So low labor costs in that time, at least. And they had ocean seashells. So an ocean seashell button industry became, you know, popped up and they could sell them for cheaper, quicker, more. Um, yeah. So hmm. that, that, that um, bested some of the practices in um, U.S. manufacturers. So that was number three. Number four. And I like to think this is the biggest one. Even more than plastic is zippers. <laughs> uh. <laughs> People are like, have that you makes... heard of zippers? Like, why are you buttoning? <laughs> and that and, makes uh... <laughs> so much sense. <laughs> that began, um, it, it became came into fashion in the early 1900s. Hmm. And that reduced the number of buttons needed for clothing. <laughs> yeah. It, sometimes it's the simple answer. Yeah, it makes sense. Yep. Yeah, zippers. Yep. Okay. Wow. So there's new avenues for the industry, though. So with the freshwater pearl button industry reduced, um, it should be noted that, that shell harvesting was not gone away entirely. In fact, Mississippi River shells um, today even are shipped to Japan for their saltwater pearl industry. So mussel shells, for some reason, shape or form, you know, these ones that coming from like Mississippi River, they're really good for making pellets or like the beginning portion of the the cultured pearls. Hmm. So they would insert into a, a sea mussel, um, an oyster, and that's that's what that cultured pearl would be based on. Okay? Hmm. <laughs> yeah, would not have guessed that. Yeah, so the oyster, it observes a foreign object, secretes what's known as nacre? So N-A-C-R-E. Nacre? N-A-C-R-E. Nacre? I don't know. Nacre? No clue. And um, yeah, it makes it makes cultured pearls. Um, Japanese pearl farms they import hundreds of tons of mussel shells to be used in their operations. And this was like beginning like the 1920s. In 1993, seven tons of shells were re were exported from the United States to Japan uh, for this cultured practice. So, mm. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and of course, what happened to John? What yeah, happened what happened to John? It's almost too crazy, but so the rest of John's life remains entwined with freshwater mussels. The guy just couldn't get enough. Uh, he took a position with the U.S. Fisheries Bureau in 1910, one of the you know, was the beginning hmm. of the bureau. Uh, okay, I think now now known as the Fish and Wildlife Service. Mm -hmm. uh, he became involved in developing mussel propagation science to assist in the declining um, freshwater mussels in the United States. So, hmm. um, well, good for him. The rest, well, don't just wait. Oh. <laughs> the rest of his life was uh, dedicated to um, yes, yeah, studying the life history of the mussels that he used for profit. However. While surveying a stream in 1911, John cut his foot on a mussel. And so we had uh, the story about him swimming around to find the mussels mm -hmm. in Mississippi. Okay. That one could be a little folklore. -y. This one happened. He cut his foot on a mussel. It became mm -hmm. terribly infected, mm -hmm. leading to blood poisoning and eventually took his life within a year. Wow. Why did they just <laughs> cut the leg off? He, um, just amputate. I don't know. So... The muscles had the last laugh with John. 
they they had their revenge. (laughs) Cut his foot. He died in Muscatine, Iowa, the town that he helped put on the map, um, where he brought wealth to many. And in 1914, a plaque was erected by the Fisheries Bureau in the Fairport Fairport Biological Station, I'm assuming close to this area, memorializing him and the many who changed the area with the buttons. And thus ends the story of John Bubble, Botan Extraordinaire, and Muscatine, Iowa, John and the Gold Bubble. Rush. It really did come full circle, didn't it? With him? I mean, you couldn't. I mean, credit, it's, at least this he... should be a, a movie. <laughs> I mean, at least he tried some conservation efforts. I'll give him mm-hmm. some credit there. He wasn't just like, you know what? Let's just get mm-hmm. let's get them all. Yeah. Um, but yeah, him dying because he cut his foot on a muscle. Yeah, it's, that's. That's poetic, almost. You can't. It's, it, it's, it almost doesn't sound real. It does know? almost. I mean, and I, this was from multiple sources. Cut his foot on a muscle. <laughs> Last wow. laugh. Yeah, and that yeah. ends the buttons. Wow. Uh, what do you think, Matt? I thought that was yeah. It's definitely a step up from you know dying of lead poisoning or PFAS. So mm-hmm. you're getting there, Riley. I think. Oh my god. <laughs> I really enjoyed this. I didn't know anything about. Never heard of John Buffle. Mm-hmm. Um, the only little bit I knew about freshwater mussels and like the stuff, I knew that they were using buttons because of that episode I did, but beyond that, didn't know anything about the industry. Yeah. Didn't know that it was like a one point over a billion dollar industry. So that's insane. Yeah. That's some of my think about. courses, I heard snippets of this being in the area that this happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'd always have photos like people standing on top of like mountains of, uh, mussel shells. Wow. Like, Yeah. And um, mm-hmm. it's almost like when you, it's almost like when you see the like the classic, uh, picture of like the person standing on, like the mountain, like the the bison skulls. It's like you mm-hmm. can't think that there were that many. It's yep. like just to think there were enough mussels in rivers to make twenty seven tons of shells in one year. Mm-hmm. Like how is that even possible? Yeah, yeah it's insane. Just build a houseboat and just dig for mussels the whole time. Wow. Wow. Mm. Well, but yes. well done, Riley. Okay, thank you.